Alrighty, the second episode of the amazing Spider-Man here on the Friendly Neighborhood Webhead Podcast. We're getting into the second quarter of the movie, talking about Andrew Garfield waking up as Peter Parker with his newfound powers. We've got a pretty packed section of the movie, so we're going to talk about that in just a second. Eric Burnham here, and with me is my co-host, Ethan Colchimiro. Sir, how are you doing this week? I'm doing well. It's a good week. 2020 just continues to throw one surprise after another at us, so I appreciate everyone taking the time to check in, check out, listen to us for a little bit, reset the batteries. Let's get amazing. Let's talk The Amazing Spider-Man. Okay, chapter two of The Amazing Spider-Man. We're picking up for those playing along at home at the 27 minute and 13 second mark. Peter Parker has just received his powers. He's fallen asleep and has woken up. We've got jokes about his stickiness and strength. Toothpaste exploding, him breaking the faucet in the bathroom. A little bit of comedy, a little bit of uh, physical humor. Yeah, this seems like he's causing thousands of dollars of damage to the bathroom that would not be easy to fix. It's not something where he can just uh, throw a sweatshirt on top of the water spraying out of the bathroom sink. But they are funny moments in there. It's a little bit reminiscent of, uh, now I can't remember which movie came first, but the Wolverine Origins where uh, he winds up destroying a bathroom with his newfound adamantium claws. So it definitely made me think of that scene. Now I have to go look up which movie came first. I actually know. Wolverine did come first. There are some funny scenes as he discovers just how strong he is now. That tracks. I I think of all of a sudden things that you used to do with that took most of your strength now could destroy a car, uh, you know, I, I think that would do some damage. A thing that I happen to notice, a contrast from the original films, after he gets his powers, uh, Peter Parker in The Amazing Movie still uses his glasses. That is an interesting observation. And I mean, I know we've talked a lot about how this movie, almost by its very nature, has to find as many points of differentiation from the Raimi trilogy, but it just seems weird that uh, all these newfound powers wouldn't uh, affect his need for glasses. Although, if I remember correctly, didn't he continue to wear glasses in the comics uh, after getting bitten for quite some time? He did for a little bit. He wore them just because they were comfortable and familiar, and then he realized he didn't need them and stopped. In this film, I wonder more along the lines of if they aren't trying to convey that he's still very sensitive and brainy, and the glasses help with that on a visual level. So... Peter is doing some studying. He's looking some stuff up. He's thinking about what he learned at Oscorp. He's hanging out on the roof, (laughs) you know, doing his homework, surprising Uncle Ben. And he's doing an equation. He's figuring out his father's work, the cross-species genetics that uh, Kurt Connors is still working on to this day. And Peter just, you know, kind of cracks it. And then he goes to visit with Kurt. And I thought that was a, it was an interesting scene. It starts off with, you don't remember me. Oh, no, no, you're that, you're that guy. Now, look, this is a private residence, so you're going to need to make an appointment. I, <laughs> I kind of got a kick out of that. That's right where he went with it. Like, it happens often. It's funny because there are things in the, in the Raimi trilogy where if it hadn't been played just right, would seem like a little creepy or like boundaries were being crossed. And my 
feeling watching this first amazing film was like he's crossing a lot of lines here he's definitely doing some things that are a little unorthodox at at the least and when peter crosses lines the thing that the movie does is it has a character call him out yeah just like kurt does here uh yeah dude this this is my house what are, what are you doing <laughs> Peter admits that he's Richard's son, and Kurt remembers him right away, Peter, and invites him in for coffee. We have a nice little bit with the reflexes, uh, the the coffee mug getting dropped and uh, Peter catching it quickly. Anyway, they get to talking about the science, and Peter just grabs a napkin and writes out the equation to fix the sequencing problem that Kurt was having. Just, you know, 17-year-old kid, boom, off the top of his head. Uh, Here you go. Did it seem as though the film may have been suggesting that the bite maybe augmented his intellectual abilities? Because as we mentioned in the previous episode, he really seemed more to be on an engineering track. And then... After reading his dad's notes and visiting Oscorp and, of course, after getting bitten, he seems to be able to solve equations that even Kurt Connors and Richard Parker couldn't solve that seemed to happen after the bite. Did you get an impression that they were suggesting that perhaps the bite also made him smarter? My gut take is that's a good no prize type of explanation. (laughs) I don't think it was intentional. I think it Mm. was just along the lines of Peter is super smart. How do we show that? One, oh, he can fix everything. Mm. Two, he can uh, understand advanced uh, (laughs) genetics and and physics and and just off the top of his head. They were just looking for shorthand ways to show he was a genius. He was adept with engineering because he needed to build the web shooters. He was adept with chemistry because he needed to resort out the web fluid, which we'll talk about in just a second. And he was adept with all the rest of the science just because it moved the plot forward. You know, like I said, I don't want to insult him by saying it was lazy writing, but I mean, it was, it was shorthand and I don't think it was intended that the bite made him smarter. I think he was just super smart and those were just convenient ways to get it across quickly and efficiently to the audience. Fair take. You know, I'm I'm unclear. It just seemed like uh, a big jump from, hey, here's a 17-year-old kid who knows how to make a smart lock and fix a washing machine to he's solving equations that the foremost herpetologist and biochemist uh, just can't seem to wrap his head around. There you go. He's not just exceptional. He's <laughs> extra exceptional. So as Kurt Wood, he says, hey, man, you want to come visit me at the lab? We could cook some things up together. Peter's like, yeah, sure. Cool. Yeah wants to find out about his dad. Plot is moved on. Let's cut back to high school. The Midtown Science High School once again and Flash proving that he is still stupid. It's <laughs> basketball time. Some students are making up some banners while the basketball practice is going on. I don't recall in high school that kind of uh, cross use. They really didn't want the athletes to hit somebody in the head with a ball, which I think was uh, more of a feature than a bug in Flash's practice. Most definitely. Yeah, I certainly don't recall ever being asked to bring paint into the gym to do art projects uh, while people are practicing athletics and calisthenics. Right. But since Flash uh, knocked his uh, knocked a paint can over or did he did he actually hit the student with the basketball? No, I can't remember. Yeah, but I think it was kind of in a way where it was a little unclear. He had plausible deniability that it was an accident, but... Uh, yeah, I'm not saying he was doing it on purpose. I'm just saying they got in his way, quote-unquote. Peter now decides to humiliate the hell out of Flash because he has the power to do so. 
he bullies him a little bit. It's a dick move on Peter's part. <laughs> he, he takes the ball and, you know, take it away from me. Come on. Why don't you take it away from me? Come on, Flash. Bounces it off his head and finally just drives past him and gets a big old shack jump and destroys the backboard. I mean, as someone who always enjoys seeing a bully get their comeuppance, I, I definitely got a big kick out of this scene. And I think my favorite moment was when Peter was holding on to the basketball while you know, almost encouraging Flash to take it out of his hands. Uh, Peter's using his adhesive abilities to stop Flash from taking the ball from him. And you see Peter sort of whisper to Flash, like, come on, take, you know, like, almost like obviously taunting him, but at the same time encouraging him for his own benefit. Like, come on, man, take the ball. Uh, so... As jerky as it was and potentially, you know, out of character, I don't even want to say out of character, but I would say not what we typically expect from Peter Parker. Uh, I still got a a, a big kick out of it and it's maybe one of my favorite moments uh, in the film, top five. And then we lead to, you know, he still doesn't seem to have a clear understanding of how incredibly strong he is as he does a... uh, all-star weekend worthy slam dunk and destroys the the backboard absolutely well i think the thing that bothered me was not that he gave flash his comeuppance but that he worked so hard to humiliate him in front of so many people yeah that that was the part that that felt just a little bit over the line for me uh and it was it was disappointing and uncle ben was disappointed and you don't want to disappoint uncle ben that's just never a good look in any of the movies (laughs) um peter destroyed school property and they called ben in for a conference with the principal i thought it was interesting that it was ben not may Mm -hmm. obviously they were both at work but ben was the one who switched his shift around to go in and talk with the principal and I liked it. He, he called Peter on it. He said, was uh, was this the guy who hit you in the face the other day? Because he did notice that when Peter had a shiner, that it was <laughs> that it was from a punch, not an accident. Right. And Peter said yes. And, and just, yeah, no, Ben is disappointed with him. And Gwen shows up in the hall. And this is what got me. We were talking about this a little bit before. It was Ben taking pleasure yeah. In making Peter squirm. Is that <laughs> is that the girl? Hey, he's got pictures of you on his computer. Just oh. calling across the hall. Just, I mean, you can feel the blood rushing to Peter's face. Completely embarrassed uh, because... We've, we've all had those situations with parents embarrassing us in some way amongst peers. I, I expect uh, you'll, you'll get some great pleasure out of paying it back to your daughter at some point in the near future. Most definitely. That's, That's right. Exactly right, sir. You know, we, we talked in the last episode about, you know, maybe uncomfy elements of, of Peter taking photos of Gwen from afar. Having that called out uh, was pretty hysterical. But I feel like Ben is doing his job. That's good parenting right there. Uh, in in finding every opportunity to embarrass your children, that that's just part of his job, and we have to respect that. Well, also, <laughs> I could just hear the wheels turning. Oh, so you like humiliating people? Let's <laughs> see how that feels, Mr. Parker. But the but the thing that I liked about this is what we alluded to a couple of minutes earlier was that it's not glossed over. Gwen calls him out on it, like uh, you have pictures of me on your computer. That's uh, mm. a little. That's a little creepy, dude. Um, he has to explain it. Now, in the Raimi movies, I think the earnestness, there, there wouldn't, nobody would feel uncomfortable by this. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, Peter's not a creepy guy, but this Peter, maybe. It's <laughs> Crosses some lines. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it is what it is. But he does get a date out of it. Uh, moving on, 
we get Peter Parker Pro Skater. He practices his powers on a skateboard. My first thought was, shouldn't he already be better on the skateboard with the spider powers before he starts, you know, flying up the ramps and everything? I, I see him. Right. He's, he's, he's trying to hop off the board and flip it and kick flip, you know, and uh, it's not quite coming together. They move it through and, and give a look at Peter playing with his powers and enjoying them and learning about them through the art of skateboarding in some abandoned industrial lot. Right. That's a fun sequence. It's maybe not the most fair thing to compare and contrast every montage or element of Amazing versus 2002's Spider-Man. But on some level, by making the choice to, to reboot a story that's only 10 years old, it puts itself in that situation. So it's a it's a well shot sequence. It's fun to watch. Uh, I think when we go back and think about, you know, Peter testing his powers or discovering his powers in 2002 Spider-Man film, it's a lot more joyous. And even though the special effects uh, aren't uh, as thrilling, uh, there's just a joy and a sense of revelation and discovery that, you know, the new movie, unfortunately, just doesn't quite match. It's true. Peter moves on now, going to visit Kurt Connors at the lab after school. They're playing around with the formula. They're testing it with computer models. It seems like they've they're cracking it. Peter gets a call from Ben. He needed Peter to walk Aunt May home because right. he had to take a late shift because Peter screwed around at school and he had to come in and talk with the principal. So Peter and his choice to humiliate Flash changed Ben's day and put right. Ben into a different frame of mind, which, you know, we'll go ahead. It's it's kind of a domino theory. This bit with on the basketball court just pushes forward until the tragedy of the origin, and we'll, we'll get to that in a second. But, yeah, so it seems like Ben typically uh, takes uh, walks May home. Uh, and we don't, do we ever get a full picture of what either one of them specifically does for a living? Uh, especially May, I don't, I don't feel like I knew what may does what her job is but she gets out late and she needs uh to be walked home uh you know which is understandable in any big city uh as far as i could tell ben was uh, just shift work at a factory that's what it sounded like mm -hmm. and now i mean a week and change after watching the movie i'm sure someone will say no you're wrong this is what <laughs> you did anyway he calls peter not to remind him of anything but he wants to connect with peter especially after the day that peter has had peter doesn't pick up the phone kurt's over there do you need to answer that no 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 i'm good i'm gonna keep doing the science and they work all night peter gets home aunt may has already gotten back she had to walk home by herself ben is livid mm -hmm. you don't often see angry uncle ben in no. any in any story i mean movies or, or comics but but this was a righteously angry Uncle Ben, who was mad because Peter didn't do what he promised to do. He didn't walk home with Aunt May. She had to walk by herself several blocks. Right. It seemed like she walked several blocks to the subway and then had to take the subway home. So that mm -hmm. enraged Uncle Ben. And like you said, I think rightly so. And I, I appreciated seeing an angry Uncle Ben because I think, you know, in that original story, we only got a handful of panels for him. And then like a lot of people who are taken before their time, they're sort of deified or idolized. And it turns out that there are these wonderful people who did no wrong. And it's sort of nice to just see Ben lose his cool, uh, even if it's justified. I'm sure it's something that he wasn't necessarily proud of. It humanized him even more, I think, to have a moment where he loses his cool and and rightly upset at Peter for really being thoughtless and, and not living up to his responsibilities, which, as we know, is a big through thread 
uh, in, in the Spider-Man myth, uh, although we don't really get uh, the specific reference to it. Yeah, they danced around the power and responsibility line, I think, because Cliff Robertson said it about 47 times in the original <laughs> trilogy. But the words would have been nice to have. It would have had just a little bit more weight. But no, Ben is reading Peter the Riot Act, and this was another thing that felt pretty real. <laughs> mm is yelling at him may saying, oh no no it's fine it's fine no you don't need to yell at him it's cool i, I got home okay it's, he's like no you do not defend him and i mean everybody with parents has had that argument with For one sure. or the other is angry and the other one is you know trying to defend and, and, and minimize peter loses it and i think it's because he realized yes he was in the wrong mm-hmm. he did the the nonsense with flash which changed ben's schedule which led to May needing to be walked home by him and then him ignoring it to go and play at the Oscorp labs. All of this stuff was because of Peter's decisions. So he felt guilty. And sometimes when you feel guilty, you turn around. Instead of saying, I'm sorry, I was wrong, you lash out at the person yelling at you. That's the defense. And that's what he does to Ben. You're not my real father. Out he goes, slams the door, breaks the door. And Ben goes after him. He's looking for him. He's following him. He's trying to talk to him. Uh, iron it out. We see at one point he's walking on the street saying, hey, Peter. And then Peter is is hanging out, you know, on top of a building in a girder, uh, having crawled up there with his spider power. Now we get to a bodega. Yeah, this is an interesting way to replicate the classic, uh, why didn't you stop that guy moment. Um, again, the film is looking for ways to differentiate from the previous trilogy and you know, sometimes different doesn't always equal better. I found this to be kind of an odd way to set up the you, you could have stopped this guy, but you didn't. And it's such a key moment in the Spider-Man mythology that you, you really have to nail this moment if you're going to nail rebooting Spider-Man. Um, I, I don't know that they nailed it. it P- Peter encounters this real jerky dude uh, at the bodega who takes a really odd stance on the take a penny, leave a penny. This is a weird hill to want to die on, so to speak, where Peter wants to take a penny and he's told that that's just the leave a penny, but you don't take a penny, which begs the question, why are people leaving the penny if no one can take it? Oh, his his take a penny policy is you need to spend ten dollars. And, and the guy is just being unnecessarily petty. Yeah. And, you know, you, 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 have $10, you don't have dollars. What do you need a penny for? Right. You know, so you don't have the two cents. You can't buy the milk. He's got almost all the money. Not two cents. The penny dish is right there. Won't allow him to have it. He's just uh, exercising power over Peter, not letting him have the milk. So Peter is going to storm out. The the thief in this case knocks something over. The guy behind the counter goes to pick it up. And the till is still open, so the guy just swipes all the money, reaches across, grabs the money. The thief does, throws Peter his milk, winks at him, and off he goes. The guy is like, oh, come on, why didn't you say something? Hey, man, it's not my policy. And it fit, it fit okay, and I, I, I'm okay with this because the wrestling thing, as iconic as it is, as much as I like it, the further into the future from 1962 we go, the less realistic it feels. Sure. There's no verisimilitude to, you know, going to a wrestling match to win money in 2012, I should say. But this feels like it could have happened. Now, I don't have beef with the idea of differentiating from the wrestling match. I think you bring up a great point about why they probably made sense to to differentiate from the wrestling match. But stopping a petty robbery at a bodega doesn't really seem 
like there's a lot at stake there. I mean, nobody was in any kind of danger. I don't know how much was in the till. I mean, it seemed like, you know, clearly less than a thousand dollars, you know, a hundred bucks, 200 bucks. I, I do appreciate that they kind of bring us into it. I like and I liked this about the Raimi film where we kind of agree with Peter uh, and that makes us complicit, too. Uh, you know, I mean, this this terrible mistake that he makes uh, makes it even more tragic if we agree with him. Uh, so I, I did appreciate that. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, we would agree with him as well here. And the other thing is, it would have been just as easy for Peter to say something as it would have been for him to stop the robber of the wrestling emporium. He could have said something. The guy would have looked up and, you know, maybe it would have gone a different way. Maybe the guy would have pulled the gun. You don't know. But he could have done something and he just didn't. He kept his mouth shut, which was the whole point of Ben's lesson earlier when he didn't say with great power comes great responsibility. He said, if you if you can do something, you should. Mm. Um, but uh, but, yeah, no, that guy is running. He's running away. He's got the money. He needs to get away quickly because certainly Mr. Bodega will be calling the cops. Uh, and that's when he runs into Uncle Ben. Ben stood up to the guy with the gun, with the running and the knocking people over. And he got shot. So, yes, the robber still shot Ben. Peter let the guy go on his merry way. And also, this whole line of dominoes started with Peter humiliating Flash. Right. That's what Ben out on the street chasing Peter because they had the argument, because Peter didn't show up, because Ben was at work, because Peter had him brought into a meeting. Now, it's more complicated. <laughs> <laughs> but... It does all definitely come down on Peter's shoulders. All of these choices that he made in that day, all of them uh, sent Uncle Ben to an early grave. Right. Now, I'm not saying it's better or worse, but it certainly is. For Peter, it would be emotional and magnify the guilt. As we discussed in our talk about Spider-Man 3, changes to the origin always leave me a little unhappy. Uh, You could even make the case that these aren't necessarily changes as much as a reinterpretation of it. It's a little less direct, a little less urgent. There's more of a convoluted line that you could point to to say that it was Peter's actions that led to this. But there's also a lot of just kind of odd happenstance and coincidences. You almost see Peter feeling more like he needs vengeance than needing redemption for his own actions. Uh, So it just makes everything, I think, a little less urgent in my mind or a little less iconic than that classic origin of a young man who makes a, a terrible mistake and then spends the rest of his life trying to atone for it. There's, It's a little muddy, I guess yeah. is what I would say. It is definitely convoluted, and it is definitely a series of small, relatable mistakes that lead to tragedy. It's more than was needed, but I think in some cases, when you want to make it more epic, you put more stuff in. And right. that's, that's just well, a storytelling impulse. It really feels like, uh, I mean, a perfect example of kind of my issue with this reboot is that the more changes that they make that are just to differentiate from the original film, the more it points out that maybe this isn't a story that needed to be retold 10 years later. That, I guess, is what a lot of these choices that seem not as powerful, not as potent, you know, that that's what it brings to mind is that we saw this not that long ago, and and it was done perfectly fine. Now, I did add some things, though. There were some flourishes that were not possible in 2002, mm-hmm. and 
they hit emotionally very well. For example, Peter ignored the call from Ben when he was at Oscorp. Ben left him a voice message, and he starts to listen to it immediately after Ben's death. He doesn't finish the entire message. He just listens to the part, the first part of it, hears Ben's voice, and breaks down. And that, uh, that was a powerful moment, and that was something that could not have been done 10 years before just because there was nowhere near the amount of cell phones in every pocket. Right. Um, yeah, it would have really stretched believability that the 2002 Parkers all would have had cell phones. Right. Now, something else that it did, and it did very well, and it worked very well, Peter going back to school after his uncle's death, and everybody has heard about it, and Flash offers his condolences. Peter thinks he's there to give him crap, to bully him some more, and, I mean, he hoists him off the wall thinking it's about time for a fight, and Flash says, hey, does this feel better? Does it feel good? Do you feel better getting some some of that out? I'm sorry yeah. about your uncle. That was fantastic, especially given the nonsense in the first scene where he beat Peter savagely. Yeah, I agree 100%. I mean, it was probably the nicest moment uh, in any Spider-Man film with Flash Thompson, it really humanized him. And I think that that line, doesn't this feel better, is very telling because you understand a lot of what Flash has done has been probably because of some pain that he has experienced, which, again, explains it. It doesn't excuse it, but I think it does humanize him. And it shows that, you know, everyone is fighting a battle that you know nothing about. Just like we, we feel like Peter's anger towards Flash is justified at first. Flash probably feels like his anger and his aggression is justified, too, based on what's happened in his life. So it, it is a an elegant and, and really nice moment. It absolutely is. And you said it a minute before, Peter now is looking more for vengeance than he is for absolution. He is looking to make somebody pay. He's looking for this thief who has a specific tattoo on his wrist. So that's what he's hunting him by. And he's just out on the streets beating dudes up. Look yeah. at wrists. Uh, at one point, he bites off a little bit more than he could chew in, you know, his hoodie and and sunglasses. And he is chased by a gang across the rooftops, uh, eventually falling through a skylight into here's the nod back a little wrestling arena. And it looks a little bit like the set they used in the Raimi movie. I doubt it was the same one, but it looks pretty familiar. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is where from a banner with a uh, masked wrestler, he gets the idea to do a costume. Yeah, I really appreciated that, especially that it was a, a luchador mask. Um, that was the word I needed. Yes. <laughs> yeah, uh, that was a lot of fun. And um, another thing about that montage that I appreciated uh, to give credit where it's due, the action scenes with Peter having his first battles with a group of opponents was really well choreographed. And you could see that the film chose to do a lot more practical stunts, which is just always thrilling. I mean, even when you see something super cool that your mind knows is CGI, there's an element of disconnection there, uh, no matter how great the CGI is. But to see what you know is an actual stunt person you know, jumping over people, flipping over things, climbing up the wall. Th there's just something about that that's really fun to watch and, and makes those images from our comic book reading childhood come to life. It's even more spectacular when you, you can tell it's a real person really doing it. So I really enjoyed that. And I enjoyed that just because he has these powers doesn't mean that he's always making the best choices in battle. Uh, he doesn't automatically know 
martial arts or strategy or things like that. So, yes, he's more powerful than these guys and he can out muscle them and and run them out, run them out, jump them, all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, he's still a nerdy kid who is still learning how to do all this stuff. That is true. He realizes he needs more. He needs the edge. He needs to hide his identity when the guy says, hey, I saw your face. <laughs> um, so, yes, that's where the costume comes in. Now, here's the part that I don't like. There was a lot made about Peter and the web shooters. And he did, in fact, invent the web shooters, the mechanical device that shoots the polymer. But it looks like from the movie, and I may be interpreting this wrong, the polymer itself was an Oscorp product that he ordered and repurposed for his own needs. Did he order it or did he steal it? Yeah, he, he had some boxes there. He had little boxes. So either he stole them or, or <laughs> figured out a way to, to order them. Yeah, he probably stole them. So he stole the web fluid straight out. Straight out. And this was a big thing. I remember when people online were saying, when the fans were reacting as they do, do you guys need to tell this story again 10 years later? And the filmmakers and, and Sony was saying, well, this is a chance for us to show what a genius Peter Parker is by making his own web. Then he didn't really make his own webs. He stole them <laughs> from Oscorp. Uh, now, of course, he did create the delivery system which is no easy feat i mean you still have to be a genius and it does kind of fall into the idea that engineering is more where his genius lies but it felt like a bit of a cop-out to say hey we're showing how smart he is by creating his own webs when he really more stole something that somebody else made yeah it's not my favorite bit of exposition there it it was efficient but uh still not my favorite now we we see peter doing a little practicing with the webs he does his leap of faith he's on the building the high building he does a handstand he goes up to two fingers in the handstand and Ooh. then off the building he goes a much higher building than toby mcguire he hits the target with his web he does a swing he lands a little cafe he does a hop off a chair and walking down the street successful test so i remember watching this going like is this the building you want to test out these powers and and do we want to maybe try a shorter building it's 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 extremely high up there and certainly cinematic and dramatic but uh, i it did make me question his uh choices to test everything out on the highest possible building he could that that almost seems a little Tony Starkish to, you know, run before you can walk kind of thing. But it definitely looked super cool. Uh, it sure did. I did. It amused me when I noticed that Andrew Garfield is the only one who tested from the highest possible building. Tobey Maguire and Tom Holland, they're both they're both tooling around, you know, five, six story buildings <laughs> <laughs> before uh, before they, they really get into it. Um, so yeah, no, he, uh, he has the webs, they're working perfectly. So he's sewing the costume, something that we didn't see in the original, because I, I would have loved to have seen a scene of him trying to make the, uh, the costume in the original Raimi trilogy. The raised webbing, right. He raised, yes, gluing it together with the hot glue and all that fun stuff. Anyhow, he puts the costume together. We're introduced to it through a first person view of him swinging through the city. I, I don't really love that, but I do love how it turned into a reveal when he's jumping towards a building with uh, windows and then lands. There was some really interesting visuals there. I mean, again, you know, when you're talking about stepping into the shoes of a remarkable visual filmmaker like Sam Raimi and you're trying to retell 
this story, you do have to find some really striking visuals. And I, I would say any Spider-Man story needs to have just spectacular visuals. I mean, I think you can get away with a character who flies or or things like that, where that's going to be kind of cinematic and you can just point the camera at that. But when you have the kinetic movement of a character like Spider-Man who swings through these concrete canyons, uh, it, it really needs to be something exciting, something you haven't seen before. I definitely give credit to Mark Webb and his team of cinematographers and and visual effects people. The first person view, and I also feel like this is something that was designed to maybe appeal to young gamers and and a newer generation of potential Spider-Man fans. It's a little awkward. It it definitely feels a little bit more like a video game, Uh, but it, it was undeniably cool that in first person when he jumps towards a reflective glass building and you see in the full costume stick to the wall for the first time. It it was a nice reveal. It was. Now we're going to talk a little bit about Mark Webb. We cut our discussion about him last week. It was an outside the box choice to do the first person stuff. And that's undeniable. You know, like I just said, I didn't love it, but definitely a unique choice and definitely outside the box. Mark Webb, his first movie was 500 Days of Summer. This was his second feature film. But before 500 Days of Summer, I think this speaks to the outside the box thinking. He was a hot and heavy hand on music videos, tons of music videos, a wide variety of artists, rock and pop. I think that made this kind of visualization a little bit more natural to him. Yeah, agreed. I mean, you know, like I said, following in the footsteps of Sam Raimi, any filmmaker is going to have really big shoes to fill. And people are inevitably going to go back and say, well, how does this hold up to the visuals of the Raimi trilogy and someone making their second film? It's almost an unfair uh, ask uh, on your second feature film to try to live up to what Raimi did in in his trilogy. Clearly, Mark Webb did the best that he could. I I don't know. I wouldn't say he eclipsed uh, the visuals of the Raimi film, but he did put some things on the screen that we hadn't seen before, and he made some bold and interesting choices. I think my favorite of them is definitely having as much practical stunts, specifically in the web-swinging scenes that was just amazing, uh, no pun intended. Um, Another thing we might want to discuss at this point is costume design. Fair enough. It is definitely stretchier. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There's there's no raised webbings uh, in this Mm -hmm. particular movie. He was uh, using sunglasses, lenses, uh, Oakley lenses, um, the the sport sunglasses, I should say, to make the lenses in this one a little bit more reflective, a little bit less opaque than traditionally is with Spider-Man. A um, bit of a yellow tint on the eyes. Uh, which because I they were sunglasses, yeah. Kind of gold, yeah, polarized kind of gold, yellowy tint, which is an odd color to see on Spider-Man. It's not what we're used to in the in the traditional costume. And again, you know, I don't want to sound like a broken record here, but it feels like a lot of the costume choices made in, in terms of the the new design were made to differentiate from the Raimi costume. And again, different doesn't always equal 
to better. No, but, you know, it is what it is. They had to do something different with the costuming anyway, because each film changes the costume in small ways just for the sake of uh, marketing. True, of course. Merchandising, not marketing. (laughs) This was definitely its own look, and some people loved it more, uh, I noticed, because it was uh, slightly more modern than the traditional Spidey look, good or bad, It, you know. It had a little bit of a, an Olympic uh, athlete kind of a feel, kind of like some of the competitive ice skating feel. It, it it was interesting that it didn't have the belt so that the the red webbed elements of the costume sort of create almost like a dagger or like a, a really long dicky. I don't know how to describe it. I, I kind of missed the belt, but I did appreciate the design on the arms and the wrists and how they sort of incorporated the web shooters in a way that really called out that he's wearing mechanical web shooters. And also, I think, you know, in, in the comics and even in, in the Raimi films, we never really saw on the costume where there's room for the webbing to come out. It's just sort of always there. But this time we really see these are mechanical web shooters that are incorporated into the design of the wrist. And I, I thought that was kind of a neat touch. The costume, in a way, reminded me of the Spider-Man costume Ben Riley wore. You could see some... Some influence there yeah. for sure. Yeah. Now we've uh, we've gotten past the costume. We we see Peter taking a call from Aunt May on a on another high building, you know, for a little bit of flavor. And now we get to one of the most popular scenes of the movie, the carjacker scene. Yes. <laughs> so there's a guy who is working hard to break into a car. Mm-hmm. And he gets in there. He gets in <laughs> behind the wheel and. There in the back seat is Spider-Man. He is just gives this guy the hardest day. Won't let him get out of the car. Pulls the door shut. Just keeps giving him crap left, right, and sideways. You know, you, you need to get better at your job. <laughs> it was very funny, very quippy, aggressive in some parts, but uh, made me laugh out loud. The one thing that I felt was more Deadpool than Spider-Man mm. when Carjacker does finally get out of the car. Spidey swings in, yells crotch, and hits him. Yeah. That was a little too Deadpool. Agreed. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, just playing playing baseball with the webs, webbing the guy up to the wall. The cops show up. This was a line that I actually still remember without having it written it down. Who are you? Did nobody understand the concept of the mask? <laughs> <laughs> right. Another thing that the filmmakers called out early on, this was going to be an opportunity to really have the quipping, the the sense of humor that Peter Parker is known for that we just unfortunately didn't get to see very much of in the Raimi trilogy. This particular scene really represents the majority of the quipping that we get throughout the film. So I never felt like one quipping scene really covered the ground or, you know, made up for the rest of the movie, not really having very much. Uh, but it was really nice to see, especially considering how hysterical some of the lines were. I really like when the guy whips out a, a knife and and Peter as Spider-Man, you know, starts weeping and begging. And, no, no, you found my weakness. Small knives. Uh, I mean, that was the laugh out loud moment for me at this. I thought that was hysterical. And even watching it again all these years later, I still got a huge kick out of it you get the feeling that you know even though his primary goal is not necessarily to stop crime but to find specifically uncle ben's killer we get the impression that the spider-man that we've come to know is is kind of on his way now he he's officially got his costume he's got his web shooters he's he's up and running 
Yes. Now, he didn't quip a ton throughout the rest of the movie, it's true. He did still quip. He did sure. still make jokes. It was just this scene was so absolutely overloaded with jokes yeah. that it made the rest of the stuff seem a little paltry. But that's okay. They're figuring it out. The cops converge upon <laughs> Spider-Man, who's been doing his vigilante acts. They're tired of him beating folks up. Yeah. You know, they, they come after him and he hightails it <laughs> after giving them, some, giving them some crap for doing their job. Uh, he, he runs. We get the the practically a cliche now. I'm filling in the blank here. I'm swinging here. <laughs> as he's, he's flying away. And, and now we get um, this isn't the first appearance. We glossed over that. But uh, Dennis Leary as Captain Stacy. I like that he's in plain clothes. Mm-hmm. He's reading these cops the riot act for letting spider-man get away he's like what is it 30 cops and you're outdone by one guy in a unitard this scene felt more like dennis leary playing dennis leary thankfully he got to act a little bit more got a little bit more uh george stacy character to play with later exactly what we come to expect from dennis leary uh is is what we get in the first scene and from watching some of the behind the scenes features it seems as though uh in the ultimate comics uh at the time uh, they were almost drawing Captain Stacy to look a little bit like Dennis Leary, similar to how in some of the Ultimate Comics they had been drawing uh, Nick Fury to look like Samuel L. Jackson. So, uh, you know, that that may explain how Dennis Leary came uh, to, to be in this film. One thing that I really liked about this particular montage is that we see a lot of practical web swinging, which honestly is a thing that I didn't think filmmakers could do. I mean, it just doesn't seem like the kind of thing you could really practically pull off. Uh, and they did it in a really breathtaking way. Spider-Man is swinging under a bridge uh, during his getaway, a bridge for uh, the elevated subway tracks. It's a really striking visual to see uh, an actual person uh, swinging uh, through New York City. Yes, it is. Now, something else that this movie did that the originals did not do Peter takes a beating and he bruises. He goes home to Aunt May. He forgot the eggs that she asked him to get when he Damn. was talking to her on the on the high building. He's going to go out right away. She goes, no, 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 you're not going to go out so late at night. You're not going to go back. And she sees just how bruised and beaten he is. Well, she's concerned. Obviously, she doesn't know what's going on. And he won't tell her. He can't tell her. She hits him with one of the best lines in the movie. Secrets have a cost. They're not free. That was a powerful line. Very powerful. Uh, And it's a powerful scene. Uh, You know, I didn't come away feeling as though what Peter said, which is just kind of amounted to, you know, can you please just go to sleep? I I don't think any parent figure would accept that as an explanation for what was happening uh, to to their child. But it's a powerful moment uh, among two really talented and skilled actors uh, so it was nice to see um, and again you know chemistry sort of continues to be one of the defining highlights of this duology i'm <laughs> still enjoying using that new nomenclature yes now we're moving on to the final scene of this chapter a little bit more egging on with the conspiracy theory stuff that the movie is fascinated with it suggests strongly to the audience without out and out saying so that kurt connors had either something to do with the parker's death or was complicit in some way, and that is what the audience is led to believe, you know, that there's something something creepy going on with the guy, even if it's not out and out said, even if it's not out and out true, that's what they're led to believe. And he's arguing with his his boss, 
who decides to fire him. Right on the eve of him figuring out what needs to be done with with the formula that uh, Peter helped him whip up. This is my note. Did they not see Spider-Man 10 years ago? You don't (laughs) fire the guy right when he has something to be working on because he's going to experiment on himself and then all hell is going to break loose. And I mean, you know, people have seen the movie. They know what happens. I mean, this is really uh, 101 from from any uh, kind of mad scientist uh, movie. Uh, Yeah, you, you definitely don't fire a scientist right on the cusp of their life changing uh, discovery because uh, it never goes well. Uh, and and this is certainly no exception. I never really understood the thinking behind firing him because it seemed like he wasn't going to sort of go along with what very plainly cl- seems to be a nefarious plan. But I, I don't see how they could do it without him. It didn't seem at any point like Kurt Connors was uh, an unnecessary cog in the wheel. Like you, you, you kind of need him to make this thing fly. So if he's not going to do it, you kind of have to convince him to do it. You can't just say you're going to take his ball and go home. Uh, well, I, I don't think. Let's rewind a little bit. I didn't say why they fired him. I kind of sure. glossed it over. My mistake. Now, what it is, the plot of what he's looking for is a way to save the life of Norman Osborn, who is dying. Mm. He's got some mysterious illness. They're looking for a cure for this mysterious illness. And Kurt's uh, investigation into regenerative properties with the lizard cross uh, species genetics Mm. is one of the things that they're looking at. Now, he's developed it, and it is made clear that they have the technology. They don't need him anymore. The breakthrough has been made, and they're ready to move on to, remember what we talked about in <laughs> Spider-Man 1? Human trials! Human and he said, trials. No, no, no. Right. He goes, we're, we're not ready for human trials. We've, we've only just started on the mice. We've got to move up. He goes, no, no. Norman does not have the time. We're going to take this over to the Veterans Hospital and give it a shot over there. Well, you can't do that. They won't consent. He goes, oh, we're going to tell them it's a flu vaccine. They're just going to give it to them. And that is pretty sinister so he he pushes back against this and this is part where the conspiracy theory comes in he goes you're starting to sound like richard parker this is Mm -hmm. how he talked you let that off and and you know sided with us but kurt argues he's maybe has a little flash of honor having spent time with peter and then yeah that's what leads to the firing he doesn't want them to do the you know surreptitious human trials on innocent veterans yeah, it's a it's a nice moment to see that, you know, Kurt still has some values, some lines that he won't cross. You get the impression that whatever his complicity is in Richard Parker's death uh, is still weighing on him. You know, he, he's found the line that he will not cross um, and the Oscorp folks are, are fine to cross it without him. Another thing we haven't really discussed much is the presence of Norman Osborn in this duology. Um, they made a concerted effort to not repeat the Green Goblin as the main villain of the first film. Uh, and they don't even show us Norman Osborn. But boy, do we feel his presence throughout the film. He gets mentioned a lot and he is driving a lot of the plot ostensibly, uh, even though we never actually catch a glimpse of him. Now, that is where we're going to cut off. We'll save the rest for Chapter 3, which is coming next week. I can't wait to get into that. We're going to finally meet the lizard. We're going to talk not just about the lizard, but about the big Steve Ditko villains. We're going to go through the list and tell you all which is our favorite and why. 
That's coming up next. Steve Ditko, the original artist for The Amazing Spider-Man and Amazing Fantasy before it, was, I mean, the golden goose when it comes mm-hmm. to long-lasting villains in the Spider-Man canon. There have been a few that came after his exit from the book. I'm looking at the list now. It's missing a few characters that you know maybe aren't uh, considered all-star material, such as the Enforcers. <laughs> a man, a guy named Joe, he's not on there. But we've got 18, maybe 19. Or 20 if you're generous. So we'll say 20 characters. The vast majority of these have either been in the movies or in animation. You know, one of the things that always gets talked about, I think, uh, about sort of the golden age of Marvel is just how prolific these guys were. I mean, Steve Ditko, Jack Kirby in particular, in just churning out a, a crazy number of dynamic villains, especially, uh, you know, sidekicks heroes allies you know there are people who are famous for creating half as many (laughs) characters as these guys were churning out a week at a time absolutely and i'm looking at the list this list that i've compiled is in order of appearance some of the biggest names don't even show up for a year into the book yeah uh we're going to start off with spider-man amazing spider-man number one the villain in the amazing spider-man number one do you know who it is course you do the chameleon that's right it's the chameleon who was later retconned to be a brother of a later spider-man here he stands alone master of disguise i like the chameleon i didn't like the chameleon so much with how they used him here i think i have an affection for him because of how he was used later we know that i'm a huge fan of the spectacular spider-man run there was a time when the chameleon kidnapped jonah jameson and replaced him and just started screwing with peter's life in that he wouldn't accept any photos that made spider-man look too good and since peter had taken so many photos of spider-man the past he kind of put the screws to him and it's just like bring me something that makes him look awful or you're basically not going to get any work so he is running a smear campaign on spider-man he's doing all this stuff and it was great use of the character it was it was creepy it was sinister i also remember a great cover uh in the uh, late 80s the assassin nation plot yes odd mcfarland cover and it's just a creepy shot of the chameleon but he's got spider-man's web pattern on his face Right. It was it was very cool. It was a very striking cover. So simple, but it looked cool. Chameleon's a lot of fun. I mean, I think there's a lot of potential for him in uh, a live action film, and we it may be misdirection, but they sort of hint at him a little bit in Far From Home, which I guess we'll cover that ground uh, when we when we get to Far From Home in a couple of probably months. The second villain that appeared. In the Amazing Spider-Man was the Vulture, and uh, the Vulture has uh, basically he's an old man. He got ripped off uh, by his inventions, by his partner, and turned to crime. And uh, he was uh, instrumental in Peter learning to trust his spider sense early on. They've done some interesting things with him over the year. They've done a lot with the fact that he is so old. I remember one scene in a much further down the road issue where he is kind of pouring his heart out to Aunt May. Uh, I, I forget how this happened. Was he? I think he was boarding at her boarding house. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> and and you know then revealed himself to be the vulture and, and just kind of poured his heart out he was used to great effect i think better effect in homecoming great effect in homecoming and one of the things i liked about the vulture throughout the years is it's very relatable. I, I think we've seen examples of people who have created amazing things in the sciences and arts. Other people benefited much more from their creations than they ultimately did themselves. So that's really relatable. And, I, you know, we've mentioned a bunch of times how much uh, I really appreciate a villain that I can agree with um, on some level. And Homecoming really nailed it in the sense that the Vulture is a bit of a blue collar villain compared to some of the geniuses who are more, you know, in, in terms of world domination, whereas the Vulture, I think, was really more of trying to kind of close the gap between the haves and the have not. They, they brought to the screen really wonderfully in Homecoming and perfect casting with uh, with Michael Keaton. Number three, we're not going to spend too much time on him. He had a brief appearance in the movies in Homecoming as well, and he was kind of a gadget man through the years, the tinkerer. The tinkerer, yeah. The big twist in the early Amazing Issues is I think he was uh, hinted to be an alien for a okay. little bit. Yeah, 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 right, right, right. I don't think they followed up on it. I think they just kind of threw it out there as a possibility and, and, and left it open and, and never went down that road. Always, I think, kind of like a, a, a B-tier or a C-tier villain, you know, is usually shown working in concert with somebody else, which I think kind of what, what he deserves. He's, he's, he's a team-up guy. He's not his own uh, threat to Spider-Man. Number four... Dr. Octopus. Mm. He's a big one. Big one. Yeah, big uh, Dan Slott is uh, his biggest fan, so he got a lot of play in uh, Slott's run of Amazing and, of course, segued into Superior Spider-Man. He was, of course, in Spider-Man 2. Played wonderfully by Alfred Played wonderfully by Alfred Molina, yes. And he has popped up a lot in some very weird stories. (laughs) True. He almost married Aunt May once because she was inheriting a nuclear power plant. I guess one of the stories that comes to mind as very interesting about Doc Ock is not even a Spider-Man story. It's a Fantastic Four story. It's a, it's a John Byrne story. Sue Storm is pregnant. She's having problems with the baby. They need an expert on radiation. And his response is basically, screw you. So there is a fight between a very angry Mr. Fantastic who, who wants his wife to be saved and uh, Doc Ock. It's got a great cover with the arms stretching in and uh, fighting with the stretched out Mr. Fantastic. I think most people would consider the Green Goblin to be Spider-Man's arch nemesis, you know. But you really could almost make a case that it's it it's Ock. Moving on to number five, Flint Marco, the Sandman. We talked a lot about the Sandman in our Spider-Man 3 discussions. Visually so cool. And I think the way Ditko drew him, just Ditko had a really interesting ink line. You know, his line work was always so interesting. You know, there was a contrast of line weight. And I don't know, just my eye is always drawn to the, the texture and the detail of, I'd almost go so far as to say is that Sandman never really looked cooler than when Ditko drew him. Moving on to number six. Six, the lizard. The lizard, I think, is my favorite Spider-Man villain. I love tragic villains. What I think I like the most about it is that it sets up a scene for the hero where you can't just overpower him or wail on him or or beat him or kill him. I mean, when you feel something for this person, when it creates another layer, it's a deeper layer. And the lizard especially, I mean, he, he was trying to better himself. He was trying to help people like himself who 
had a, an injury or a disability that you know he was hoping that science could alleviate, had these tragic results, turns into this creature that is cold-blooded by nature and is not the good person that, that we know Kurt Connors to be. They've done a lot of weird things with the lizard over the years. Some of them have been, is he a dual personality, Kurt Connors and the lizard? Is he a manifestation of rage over the missing arm? They did play a lot with the tragedy. He's, he's the werewolf, the unlucky Larry Talbot of the Spider-Man Rogues Gallery. Number seven, the living brain, a robot that deduced Spider-Man's identity and it, it spit it out as computation and Peter Parker was supposed to translate it. Uh, number eight, Electro. Hate wearing I, that mask. I almost hope I'm wrong. But I doubt we'll see a live action version of that mask. Ditko had a habit of asking for the villains to just be nobodies. And I think in this story, Spider-Man got Electro's mask off and says, I have no idea who this guy is. And he kept wanting to use that trope until Stan finally says, OK, you know what? No. When he gets to the Green Goblin, no. Now it has to be somebody. It has to be somebody that we're, we're invested in. I, I really think that as much as it made sense to go with Ditko's way most of the time, uh, dramatically, Stan was right on the Green Goblin. We'll get to the Green Goblin in a bit. Number nine, Big Man, who was revealed to be wasn't it Frederick Foswell of the Daily Bugle? He was just a he was just a crime boss in a big padded suit. He was a little tiny man. He he, he padded it out. He had he had a great visual with the fake mask. There's uh, obviously a lot going on there with uh, a little man calling himself the big man. Yeah, yeah, there we go. He often worked with a, a group of characters, the Enforcers, Fancy Dan, Montana, and Ox, three thugs that uh, Spider-Man often faced in the early days. Number 10, Mysterio, Quentin Beck. A lot of great stuff has been done with Mysterio in the comics. And they made the most out of that in Spider-Man Far From Home. I think the stuff where he was using the uh, projected technology to just throw everything off, most impressive visuals and goes to show just how much fun you can have with Mysterio, that nightmare dream trapped in the snow globe that is Mysterio's head or zombie Iron Man, all this stuff. Just it was a real ride. It's funny how long people wanted Mysterio to be in a movie. We finally got our wish. For 11, finally, we've gotten to the Green Goblin. Probably the the number one guy. Uh, and they've mined so much material out of him. He was Spider-Man's primary villain for quite a while. I don't know exactly. Was it more than a year before he was ultimately unmasked? It was more than a couple years. Green Goblin debuted in Spider-Man number 11. His identity was finally revealed in Amazing Spider-Man number 39. So it was a while. I don't think he was Spider-Man's main villain in any way until he discovered Peter's identity. And then that kind of just nudged him over into a different category, which was compounded when he killed Gwen Stacy. Uh, number 12, I'm going to tell you right now, this one's my favorite, Craven the Hunter. I, he's my favorite. He, he's the one I got to write. <laughs> well, sure. Craven, though, is so great. And this is even before Craven's Last Hunt, which is the defining story for the character. He was just a dude who he hunted. He had, he had some semblance of powers. He was a good hunter and, you know, he was going to excel and succeed because he'd, he'd done everything else. He's going to do this thing because he has to. It's the only thing that he has failed at. And I loved it. I like the old world Russian aristocracy that they brought to him. Eventually, they made him immortal and uh, pre-Bolshevik. They gave him different powers. They had a great bit in uh, Christopher Priest first Black Panther series that put him up against the Black Panther. And those were fantastic uh, foils for each other. I think he might even been a better villain for the Black Panther than he is for Spider-Man. Uh, number 13, Matt Gargan, the Scorpion. Huh. He has such a great look. Initially, didn't have the, the stinger at the end of his tail, just had a, a bludgeoning tail. He was a reasonable private detective who took extra money to be turned into the Scorpion, be given powers, and it 
drove him insane. I enjoyed the way he that Matt Gargan was introduced in Homecoming. He, he was not introduced by mistake in any way, shape or form. But, you know, we, we've seen characters like Kurt Connors introduced in the Raimi films. And then, you know, unfortunately, we just never got to see the potential realized. Uh, so I hope that that is not the case with uh, Matt Gargan. Always thought it was interesting how connected J. Jonah Jameson was to the creation of the Scorpion. And it puts J.J. into a different category to have the Scorpion sort of be something that he helped unleash into the world. Jonah, you would think, would be an accessory to some of those crimes. You know, what can you do? I guess he has a great lawyer. Now that they've reintroduced J. Jonah Jameson to to the Marvel films and that uh, they can figure out a way to incorporate when Mac Argan does uh, inevitably become the Scorpion. Number 14 is Spencer Smythe and the Spider Slayers, uh, remote-controlled robots that were often sent out against Spider-Man. My favorite was from the 70s that had Jonah's face. Dude, you, you've got no legal cover here. There's your face on a robot that is tearing up the city trying to stop Spider-Man. There's, there's missiles, there's lasers. You're off your nut, Mr. Jameson. Number 15, the man in the crime master's mask. Crime master. Another dude in a mask. He's crime a master board. of crime. Yeah, it's sort of like like whoever names the stuff in a refrigerator. This thing keeps the stuff crisp. Mm-hmm. It's the crisper. Yeah, it felt like Stan had a had a weekend to get to. Uh, number 16, the molten man. I yeah. like the molten man. He was later Harry Osborne's brother-in-law. Number 17, he was originally called the meteor man, if I'm not mistaken. Norton G. Fester. I love Norton G. Fester. I love the looter. Um, Todd DeZago and Mike Waringo used him to entertaining effect in the Sensational Spider-Man. And I used him in issue four of Marvel Action Spider-Man just because he is just pure comedy. He is a failure in the biggest possible way. He's got powers. He breathed in gas from a meteor, so he's strong and he can jump, but he is kind of an idiot. He's an idiot scientist. He knows how to do some things, but not enough to be successful. And he's got just this great purple and white costume. He was that way from the beginning. He was not a serious villain. He is just a giant dork. Number 18, the last in the list, Robot Master. Robot Master, yeah. I mean, right up there with Crime Master or the big man, just uh, just a name or the crisper, just says what he's all about. He's a master of robot. That's right. You know what? I'm going to look it up at some point and see if there was a character called the crisper. <laughs> I really crisper. want there to be. Turns out He's there not. was not. There was not a character called the CRISPR. You know, you and I both have been looking for a character own thing to do. That's it. So it's the CRISPR. Watch Who, out, world. Well, there's the list of the Ditko villains. It is an impressive list because... Um, really is. Yeah, it's just remarkable, the deep bench of characters that Ditko co-created. and Absolutely. Well, we've gone through the list. Folks, we'd like to hear who your favorite of the Ditko created villains are. Chameleon, Vulture, Tinkerer, Doc Ox, Sandman, Lizard, Liverbrand, Electro, Big Man, Mysterio, Green Goblin, Craven, Scorpion, Spencer, Smythe, Crime Master, Molten Man, Looter, or Robot Master. Take your pick and let us know. My pick is Craven the Hunter. Ethan's pick is the Lizard. Who do you got? We, uh, we've we come to the end of the podcast for another week, but we cannot finish before we let you know how to get a hold of us after all. Email us at cinemaspidey at mail.com Message us at Twitter at webheadpodcast or drop us a line a voicemail anchor.fm slash webhead podcast those are the ways to get a hold of us and i think it's important for eric and i to reiterate that whoever is the first listener to leave us a voice message on anchor fm to be played on the podcast will receive original spidey art from both eric and myself so don't sleep on that friends there's only one person who's going to be the first so we'd love it to be you that's our time for another week we'll see you next friday take care friends 
Whoosh, <whistles> whoosh.